Well, good morning, and uh, it's good to see you today, and I uh, just want to welcome you to our live stream here at Red Lane Baptist Church. This is, uh, I guess, Sunday number three that we have been displaced, and uh, we're gathering together virtually through this, uh, this technology, and, and I'm thankful that we're able to do this in, in, in this sort of environment, in this sort of situation that we find ourselves in as a nation and obviously as a church, but the Lord has blessed us and been gracious to us enough to give us the means by which we can connect even when we can't gather together. And so I'm glad that you're with us this morning and excited to open God's Word and and allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and speak into our lives this morning. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it, find your place today in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, and if you want to take two other fingers and and just place them in Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1, we're going to be in those passages in just a a little bit. But this morning, I want to speak to the subject of the business of the church. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago. It was really before all of this uh, all this pandemic stuff began to really uh, take place within our country, and I uh, planned to preach Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. I was going to do it this past Sunday, and then uh, things changed, and I just went in a different direction last week, just sort of speak to where we are as a, as a nation, as a church, and how we should respond to this pandemic, and, and rather than responding with hopelessness, responding with faith. And this morning, I want to pick up where I initially wanted to be this past Sunday, and just speak to the subject of the business of the church. I wonder if you've been to some beautiful places or experienced some incredible situations in life, if you've ever just asked, you the, asked yourself the question, how did this happen? Uh, I, many times in my life I've, I've wondered why or how something is the way it is or how it came to be or how it came into existence. For example, I remember on multiple occasions when I've been to the country of Uganda, in western Uganda, there are several crater lakes that are scattered across the countryside, and they're absolutely beautiful. And she'll be driving along in the, in, the, in, the, in the Savannah area, or maybe you're on the national park there at Queen Elizabeth National Park, and you'll come across this beautiful, perfectly circular lake, this crater that's right there in the, in the ground, and it's massive. I mean, it's probably a mile or two across. There's usually water at the bottom. Sometimes it's salty water. Sometimes it's fresh water. But I come across those, and, and I've just always wondered, how in the world did this come to be? How did it come into existence? What were the, the, the situation that led to its, its birth there? How did it come into existence? And when you're standing on the rim, you just can't help but ask yourselves that question. I, I remember just a few years ago, standing on the southern rim of the Grand Canyon and, and asking a very similar question. How did this happen? How did it come into being? Or perhaps your favorite sports team uh, had a phenomenal season, won the championship, and, and at the end of all of that, you just kind of sit back and you, you just think to yourself, wow, what an incredible season. How did this happen? How did it come into being? When I read chapter 7 here in the book of Revelation, particularly verse 9, the same question presents itself to me. There, believers of every kind are gathered around the throne of God and before the Lamb of God, and they're worshiping and they're praising God and they're crying out and and making much of the salvation that's found in God. And so when you read Revelation 7, 9, I can't help but just ask the question of how did this happen? How did this happen? What was it that, that led up to this moment? What took place to make this 
happened? Who are these people and from where did they come from? Look with me, Revelation chapter 7. Let's read verse 9 and verse 10. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This chapter, if you've been with us, over the last several weeks, you know that this chapter, Revelation 7, is an interlude. It's a, a parenthesis, if you will, between the sixth and the seventh seal judgments. It provides for us an essential background in the information. It's also an encouragement to John's readers to help them understand that God's going to safely see the church through the Great Tribulation. Here in Revelation 7, John sees two groups of people in his vision. First, he sees the 144,000, and then second, he sees what he refers to as a great multitude. I believe both groups represent the church. They're seen from two different vantage points. See, the 144,000 is symbolic of the church that's present during the tribulation, and those believers are sealed with the the mark of God upon them that protects them from his wrath that's going to be unfolded and poured out upon the sinful, wicked, apostate people on the earth. The great multitude is also symbolic of the universal church who stands before God after the eschaton, after the end times events have come to a close, and they're standing there before God in the blessedness of eternity. I want you to notice something that John sees here as he describes this group. He calls them or refers to them as a great multitude of people. A great multitude of people. In other words, what John is seeing here is a throng of people standing before the throne of God. And this throng of people stretches out as far as the eye can see from the east to the west, from the north and the south. And they're standing before the throne of God. It's so large of a group that no one can count them. On top of that, it's made up of every people from all over the world. He tells tells us that they're from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. Isn't this amazing? Well, we're going to see one day when we're standing there as believers with other believers before the throne of God is we're going to see this amazing group of people from all walks of life, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That means people from every walk of life, people from every type of color, every continent, every level of society, every educational background, every financial level, all represented before the throne of God. The rich and the poor, the young and the old, all gathered before the Lamb of God at the throne of God. How can this be? What is it that has led and enabled this to happen? How will there be people gathered around the throne from every nation and tribe and people and language? This is a great question, and it's the question I want to answer this morning in my time with you. Here's what we do know. The people who gather around the throne from every nation and tribe are there because the church, the people of God, made disciples. The people will be there before the throne of God because someone invested spiritually into their life, discipled them up, who made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples. And so the church 
obeyed Christ's command. They are there because this is the business of the church. It's the work of the church. It's what Jesus commanded and commissioned us to do. Remember the Lord's final words that are recorded there in the the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says this, just before he ascends to the Father. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Call this the Great Commission. It's what Jesus commanded us as followers of Jesus to do. It's what he commanded us as his disciples to do. See, he commands the church to take the gospel with us as we go about our lives. That's what the, 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 the verbiage there is telling us. Go, therefore, and make disciples. It's, in other words, it's the idea of as you go, as you live, or you must go and do this. This means we are to make disciples in our everyday life. It's not just when you get on a plane and go overseas. It's when you're talking to your neighbor who lives next door to you. It's when you're interacting with a person at the gas station. As we go, we make disciples. It also means that we do strategically make disciples of unreached and underreached peoples of the world. You see, I firmly believe the Lord's main purpose in giving us the book of Revelation is not so that we can know every little thing about the um, details of the end times. I really believe that we've been given the book of Revelation to spur us on in our commitment to the Great Commission. Sure, the book of Revelation is a blueprint for how and what these end times are going to look like, and we've been... Dealing with a lot of this as we've walked through these first seven chapters, we're beginning to see how it's unfolding. But this is not the main purpose. I believe the main purpose is twofold. It's to encourage perseverance in the faith for those who are dealing with suffering and persecution, while at the same time fueling evangelism because of what Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says, the time is near. Picture of a great multitude of saints gathered around the throne from every nation and tribe revealed the results of obedience to Christ's command. The command for us to make disciples of all nations. And so I want to spend the next few minutes of my time just kind of fleshing out and talking about this business of the church. So, how do we make disciples? Well, three things. We make disciples, number one, as we go with the gospel to lost people. We make disciples as we take the gospel to those who need to hear it. You see, as Christians, we love people. As Christians, we love to serve people. We naturally have a desire to meet the needs of others and to take care of them. Right now, all around us, there are many needs, and needs are growing as people are being laid off and losing jobs and all of the effects of that. Some are frightened by the threat of being infected with this virus that continues to spread across our country and around the world. Others are sad because they cannot visit loved ones who are in the hospital or who are in nursing facilities or perhaps even have died in recent days like some in our own church family and and they're having to rethink how they're going to do the funeral in the coming days. We naturally are moved 
to give food and supplies to those who are in need. We are naturally moved to step in and meet needs because that's who we are or part of who we are as a follower of Jesus. This natural desire to serve is good. This natural desire to serve is it's godly. But it's not great commission work if it does not include the gospel. See, for it to be great commission work, we must include the good news of what Jesus has accomplished and what he offers to people today. For it to be great commission work, we must remember that the greatest need in a person's life is not food, it's not shelter, it's not a warm bed. The greatest need in every single person's life is to be forgiven of sin and have a relationship with the God of creation. Now, there's nothing wrong with serving. We should and we do serve. We do want to meet physical needs around us. We should, as Christians, seek to serve others. But our work should always include, it should always emphasize the gospel of Jesus Christ as we meet the physical needs. See, in sharing the gospel, we explain how God designed them to be in relationship with him. That's what we do. We go to them. We say, we've got great news for you. God loves you. He designed you. He created you for himself. We share with them that they are a sinner by nature, and by nature they sin, and that sin separates them from God. It puts them under the just judgment of a holy God. But we tell them even better news. We tell them that Jesus has come, God in the flesh, to pay the penalty in full for them. If they will simply turn from their sin, put their faith and trust in Jesus, they can have forgiveness and be in relationship with the God who loves them and created them. All they have to do is repent and place their faith in Jesus. And then when a person turns from his or her sin, when that person trusts Jesus as Lord and as Savior, we take another step in our disciple making. So here's step number two. We baptize and connect new believers with the body of Christ See, the Bible knows nothing, and I say this all the time, the Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christianity. Instead, what we see from Genesis to Revelation is this biblical concept of community. As God calls us into community with one another, he created us for community and never to be in isolation. The Bible knows nothing of a Christ follower who is not connected and involved in a local church. It knows nothing of spiritual growth outside the community of faith. Instead, the Bible constantly calls us and leads us as the people of God toward greater connection and community together. So Jesus says in Matthew 28 that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize new believers as a way of identifying them with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. This connects and implants them to the local church where they will be loved and nurtured and taught the word of God. This leads us to a third step in how we disciple. We teach believers to obey everything Jesus commanded. Remember, Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This means unconditional surrender and obedience are not optional for the believer. For the person who says, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Lord, that means that person must surrender under his lordship. You see, you cannot claim Jesus as Savior if he's not also your Lord. 
You cannot say, Jesus has saved me from hell. Jesus has saved me from the penalty of my sin. Jesus has forgiven me and removed my sin from me. At the same time saying, I have no desire, no inclination, no want to whatsoever to obey Jesus and take his word and apply it to my life. That sort of mindset, that sort of understanding is heretical. It's antithetical to the teaching of the word of God. It's not Bible teaching. You do not pray a prayer and get baptized simply to escape hell. There's no such, of, no such thing as fire insurance when it comes to the gospel. No, when we understand our sinfulness and our separateness from the Lord Jesus, we come to him on our knees, on our face. We surrender and bow before his lordship, and he transforms our lives. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not talking about perfectionism when we become a disciple. Following Jesus as your Lord does not mean that you're perfect or that every aspect of your life is surrendered over to him. It's talking about a desire. I want to follow the Lord Jesus as my Lord. We know this, that the ongoing ethic of the Christian life is repentance and faith. It's confession of our sin. So discipleship is a lot like peeling an onion. You peel an onion, you pull off one layer, and then there's another layer, and you peel off that, and there's another layer. That's what happens here. As, as the Spirit of God begins to take the Word of God and, and bring sanctification to us, it unveils more and more layers that need the sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus. And so when those things are brought to our attention through the Spirit of God, we lay those down, we confess them for what they are, we surrender them to the Lord Jesus, and we move on under His Lordship. This is the process of sanctification as we learn how to obey more and more faithfully everything that Jesus has commanded. And so as disciple makers then, we go to the lost with the gospel. We baptize and connect them to the church and we teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Here's a second question that I want us to, to, to wrestle with over the next few minutes. Not so much how do we make disciples, but where do we make disciples? Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, also right there as he's about to ascend to the Father, Luke gives this account. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He says we're to make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in one way, we can view these as concentric circles, one circle in the middle, and then circles moving outward. The gospel, in other words, moves out from the center into new areas around us. In this, though, we should not think that we have to or we should reach every single person in the inner circle before moving to the next circle. Oftentimes what happens in our lives is that our lives transfer or, or move across multiple circles and areas of influence. And so where then do we make disciples? Where do we make these disciples? Let me give you four things this morning, quickly. We make disciples, number one, in our homes. We make disciples in our homes. You see, the nucleus for disciple-making is the home. It's not the church. The church is there to serve the home. The church is there collectively to serve individual families. Your Jerusalem, as a follower of Jesus, is your home. Dads, this means that your primary responsibility, your primary target to make disciples is your wife and your children. Moms, it's your 
husband and your children as you are collectively discipling one another. This is also true of Christian children with unregenerate parents or unregenerate siblings, those who do not know Jesus, is that you're there, that's your Jerusalem, as you seek to win them to Christ and disciple them in the faith. So we want to prioritize the gospel in our homes. We want to prioritize the local church in our homes. We want to prioritize the teaching of God's word and obedience to it in our homes. And it's ironic this morning that many of us are gathered together around the Word of God in our homes. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying there to think that we should not and need not gather together collectively as the body of Christ because we should and are commanded to do so. But it's ironic this morning that we're in our homes gathered around the Word of God and seeking to be developed as a disciple. And so, with that said... As we emphasize discipleship in the home, we dare not make our homes a monastery. We dare not isolate and insulate ourselves in an attempt to keep the sin out. Because the truth is, none of us can ever keep the sin out of our homes. How do I know that? It's because you are there and I'm there. We're sinners by nature. It's our, we still deal with the flesh. And so, so the, <coughs> excuse me. Though we want to, coronavirus, by the way, just kidding. <laughs> um, though we want to protect our children, though we want to put safeguards up all around us, we don't, do not want to make our homes a monastery, building a fence up, walling people out in an attempt to keep the world out. Now, what does the Bible tell us? It tells us to be in the world, but not to be of the world. At the same time, with that, we don't want to make our homes the recreational cruise ship where everything is about fun and, and experiences, and, the, and that's the goal of our parenting. No, the goal of our parenting is to raise up children who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who are a disciple and know how to make disciples of others. You see, God has placed you as husband and wife and children as a single parent. Whatever your, your home looks like, he's placed you there to be a missional, disciple-making outpost. So what if we began to see our homes as disciple-making pods, launching us out to live on mission with the gospel, reaching our kids' friends, reaching our kids' friends' families, reaching those in our neighborhood? What if we live for God as a family in such a way that it, be, it became attractive to those around us? This leads us to a second area, a second place where we make disciples, and that is in our neighborhoods. I mean, think about it. He says, Jerusalem, Judea, it's moving out in these circles out of the center of Jerusalem. Have you begun in your own Christian walk to, be, to see your address, to see your house, where you live today, not as something you picked out because it was affordable, not something you picked out because you liked the layout of the, of the floor plan, not because of the, the neighborhood itself, but you picked it or God picked it out for you and you understand that he sent you there, placed you there. The place you live today is not an accident. God puts you there. He sent you there. He's called you and set you on mission. It is your mission field. So what are you doing to build relationships with your neighbors? What are you doing to ensure that families living on your street and around the corner will be gathered in that great multitude, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb? What have you done to reach those in your neighborhood? Here are some things I want to encourage you to consider. 
Invite your, your neighbors into your home. Begin to build relationships with them. We're so isolated and so insulated as a culture. We're a, back, we're a backyard type of culture. Rather than always being in the backyard or always being indoors, go outside, take a walk, interact with people. Force them, if you will, to talk to you. Host cookouts, host a block party, go on family walks, and as I said, talk to people. Pray for your neighbors. Why don't we just begin there? We've been emphasizing for about 18 months, bless every home. If you haven't participated in that yet, I want to encourage you to do that. Go to our website. You can sign up. But it's a way for you to strategically and intentionally just simply begin to pray for the people who live around you. And then share the gospel with them. Teach them the word of God. Host a Bible study in your home. As we move out of our Jerusalem, as we move out of our Judea, we go to our Samaria and out to the ends of the earth. And so where do we make disciples? We do it in our homes. We do it in our neighborhoods. Thirdly, we do it in our community. See, we want to be a witness for the gospel in our community. We want to look for ways to serve. We want to look for ways to engage people who who live around us and live in our country, who live in our state. We want to plant churches. We want to start missions. We want to actively share with people. So we join together as as the church to strategically and intentionally and creatively and urgently take the gospel to unreach and underreach peoples in our area, in our community, across our state, across our nation, which leads us to a fourth where. We make disciples among the nations. Again, going back to Revelation 7, verse 9, the scene there before the throne of God and before the Lamb, it's going to be a glorious one. It's going to be an amazing scene. There will be people there from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Why is that? It's because John three sixteen. God so loved the world. As Christians and as a local church, we must always have our eyes, always have our hands on the nations because the Lord's eyes and the Lord's hands are on the nations. Today, God's spirit is mightily moving all around the world. Even in the midst of this pandemic that's global, we're hearing stories and hearing reports of how the gospel is flourishing. As people have no hope, they're seeking hope and they're finding it in Jesus. And so the gospel is flourishing Lives are being transformed by its power in very hard and difficult places. The church is strong. Disciples are being made. With that said, there still are thousands of unreached and underreached peoples scattered throughout the nations of this world. Many of them are in hard-to-reach areas, but this should never deter us from going. God has commissioned us to go to the ends of the earth, and his gospel compels us to go. This multitude, this great multitude in Revelation 7, verse 9, will be made up from people from all over the world who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't act like us. Some of them will have been led to Jesus by their neighbor or through the ministry of a local church. Others will, be, will have been introduced to Christ by someone who was sent to the other side of the world to take the gospel across cultures as believers And as a church, we believe in and are committed to make disciples of our neighbors and the nations. Why? It's because it's the business of the church. So how will there be people gathered around the throne of God and the Lamb? 
They will be there because God's people have been committed to telling sinners about grace and mercy that are found exclusively in Jesus Christ. Today, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, we can fret about what's happening. We can get upset. We can become stressed out. We can become frustrated about the restrictions. Or we can take advantage of opportunities that have been given to us to offer hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We can share the gospel and point lost people to the Lord. Disciple making is the business of the church. It's not about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, though we're to do that. It's about making disciples. So today, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if there's been a point in your life where Jesus radically transformed you, uh, forgave all your sins. As the Bible says, removed it from the east is from the west, and he remembers it no more. If you're in Christ today, if you're his disciple, are you making disciples? Are you doing what you should be doing? Do you see your home as, a, as an opportunity and, a, and, and the most strategic place for you to make disciples? What about your community? What about the nations? What are we doing to make disciples? It all begins with relationships. So what are those relationships that you have? What are those relationships that are around you? Well, you have your family. You, know, you have your coworkers. You have classmates if you're in school, the neighbors who live in your street, the social groups that you're involved in, associates that, that serve you at the stores that you re- frequently uh, visit. Those are the relationships that you have. And start where you are then. Start in your Jerusalem. Move out to the nations. Simply tell your story. Share your testimony. Talk about what Jesus has done for you and bring them to the gospel. That's what it means to be a disciple-making disciple. This morning... Perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus. So what is the message for you this morning? It's a message of hope. And the hope is this, God loves you. God loves you so much that he created you, created you for relationship with himself, designed you, has a wonderful design and plan for your life. Unfortunately, the bad news in all of the story is this, is that all of us are sinful. All of us are sinners. We've broken that design that God has created us for. The sinful nature that we have comes from Adam. It comes from Eve. It separates us from God. It puts us under the judgment of holy God. It creates a great chasm that cannot be crossed. Our sin condemns us. It leads to further brokenness in our lives. And so what is the message of hope for us? That's the best news. It's that God has done everything possible to bring you into relationship with him. God is our Emmanuel. He came to this earth. God the Son came. We know him as Jesus Christ. He lives a perfect life. He died as a perfect sacrifice. His blood was shed to pay the penalty for your sin, to satisfy the just judgment of the holy God so that you could be forgiven and made new and made whole. So what do you do? You turn from your sin, confess it, repent of it, and you place faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for that forgiveness and for that restoration that he promises to you. I hope this morning you're in relationship with Jesus. I hope this morning you've been encouraged to be a disciple-making disciple. I hope this morning that if you're not in relationship with Jesus, that you'll do what I did many, many years ago as a freshman in college. Hear the gospel be moved by the gospel, and move to place your faith and trust in Jesus 
Christ. In just a moment, there's going to be a slide that pops up on your screen. As we contemplate all that we've heard from God's Word this morning, we need to respond to it. We need to respond in faith. We need to respond, perhaps, in in confession of sin and repentance. And so if the Lord is moving in your heart in in some form or fashion, here are a a number of options for you. Perhaps God is speaking to you, and he's saying, you need a relationship with me. You're walking, (coughs) excuse me, you're sinful, and you've never turned from that sin, and you need a relationship with me. This morning, you need to believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you'll just simply take your phone and text to that number and just put the words in there, believe. We will follow up with you later today tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you need to, as a Christian, rededicate your life to him, you know, you've been walking at a guilty distance, and you just simply type rededicate. This morning, maybe you need to be baptized. You know, that's the, the one thing, and we looked at it there in Matthew chapter 28, part of, uh, of becoming a disciple is following him in baptism, identifying with him. There's no saving component there, but it's an essential part of walking in obedience as a disciple. So if you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, being placed under the water after salvation, you need to be baptized. Perhaps you need to join our church. You've been visiting for a while, and it's about time to begin that conversation. You text that. Maybe this morning you have some sort of prayer need. I got uh, some of these last week when he offered this time of response. There's a lot of need out there, and we're praying for you. We're praying with you. And so you just simply type your prayer need, and we will pray and follow up with you later this afternoon. Let me pray for us, and I want to share with you just a couple, couple things. Before I pray, let me just encourage you, um, uh, you know, to, to continue to be faithful, continue to pray for people, continue to encourage, and also continue to be faithful in your giving. And so when I pray in just a moment, I'm just going to pray over an offering that, that's going to be received this week. Um, let me just commend you as a church. You've been so faithful in that area this last week or so as we've been working with this uh, new normal for us. So many people have dropped off their offering envelopes. They've given online. There's so many different options to be able to do that. So I want to thank you for your faithfulness and commend you there, but also want to encourage you to continue to be faithful, to honor the Lord with the first fruits of what God has given to you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've given us to encourage us, to strengthen us, to build us up in our faith. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this, what seems to be chaos around us, may we be a people who stand boldly, confidently, and courageously and offer the hope of Jesus Christ to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to the people in our community, literally to people around the world as we have opportunities, sharing the gospel, telling our testimony, encouraging them, in the faith. Lord, thank you for what you've called us to. Thank you for what you've given us in in a church, in this church called Red Lane. Thank you for what you're doing in us and through us. And God, I thank you for our faithfulness, our our financial, just willing to to roll up our sleeves and be faithful in that area. And God, I pray your blessings upon us. Help us to continue to honor the Lord in that way. Bless the giver, bless the gift. According to your word in Malachi 3, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Uh, I want to encourage you to continue, as I said earlier, pray for people, serve people, minister to people in the name of Jesus. And um, if you need help with anything, reach out to your small group leader, reach out to your deacon, call us here at the office, our elders, our staff. We're all available, all hands on deck. In fact, this week, uh, our staff has been calling through most of the role. I think most everyone's been called this week. 
Uh, we might have missed one or two there on accident somehow, but it's been so encouraging talking to people this week and hearing what they're doing and how they're uh, faring, and, and I'm encouraged. God is blessing. God is taking care of our people, and it's so good to hear how small groups are ministering to one another, how deacons are serving, and, and so I want to commend you as your pastor. Thank you for being the body of Christ, ministering to the body of Christ. Let's continue to do that as we serve our community as well. God bless you. I hope you have a great Sunday. Looking forward to seeing you again on Wednesday night for our time of devotion and prayer right here on our live stream. God bless you. See you later.